0: Welcome to Black Family Table Talk. We are your hosts, Tony and Tony.
1: Listen in weekly as we discover ways to build a strong black family. What are we going to discuss today, Tony?
0: Tony, let's talk about the time you served as a black investigator in the prosecutor's office.
1: Wow, that was in 1991. I was appointed an investigator. And I was young. I was 29 years old, graduated from Howard. I was actually attending graduate school at NYU, uh, studying nonprofit management, organizational development, and public policy. I got the connection because of my father. My father was a Newark police officer and he joined the force in 1963, the month I was born. And growing up, seeing him as a cop was incredible to me. I thought he was a hero. And my mother later became a correction officer. And I have a cousin who's a cop. We were definitely a law enforcement family. And living in Newark in the 60s it definitely is a fraternity where you get to know other cop families and then we hang out together we have cookouts we go on a vacation so it truly is a fraternal order my father was one of the first Blacks to join the force, to be admitted to the Newark police force. There was a cab driver that was beaten up by white police officers. He was a Black cab driver. And that sparked the riots in 19... What year was that? 1967? The Newark, the Newark riots in 1967. So my father was on the force. He's still considered to be young or rookie. And we lived on South 17th Street between Springfield and Avon Avenue. Springfield Avenue was ground zero for... For the riots we so we lived a half a block from it. and my father was going out every day in riot gear and i remember the phone ringing and people concerned about his safety and his welfare but i do remember that it was a tense time so fast forward <laughs> 29 years later here i am i'm a prosecutor's investigator there were 174 prosecutor investigators i was one of 11 females and it was probably about half black investigators and half white that in and of itself created a disparity culturally speaking one of the things that i remember about a year into it less than a year there was the rodney king incident which was in los angeles california sparked riots all over the country. So then again, we're dealing with this riotous situation as a result of a police incident. And this time, of course, it was caught on tape. That's three decades. At that time... Having graduated from Howard University, I was very confident in who I was. I've always been vocal. So I wasn't quiet about voicing my opinion about things. So at the time, being female and having a voice, it was a challenge to be heard, but I didn't let it deter me. I I do wanna share a story about what happened while I was a prosecutor's investigator to let people know about the bias that exist inherently in our judicial system. And one particular time that was assigned a case, I would work with the prosecutor who was assigned to that case. And sometimes prosecutors had their favorite investigators and they would ask an investigator to, to be assigned to that case. So I did develop a reputation in a very short period of time of being a thorough investigator. One particular incident, uh, this was a white prosecutor asked me to help him with the case. It was a simple case, a robbery where a black kid and a white kid was involved. The white kid set up the robbery, told the victim, we want to buy your dj equipment meet us at so-and-so space and bring the dj equipment and they ended up robbing him of his equipment so when the, the city detective wrote up the case they charged the black boy with the crime they let the white kid go so when i'm reading this report It's very vague. It's not clear as to the white kid's involvement. So I picked up the telephone to call the detective who had the case. When it becomes a police report, it's initially handled by the patrol officer. And then it goes to the detective who then investigates and is responsible for making the arrest. Then it will come to the prosecutor's office where we pursue charges against the perpetrators. And that can take anywhere from, I think we had a time frame of 24 to 72 hours. You had to do your investigation and make the charge. So I can sometimes understand delayed prosecutions because there's investigations that have to be done and sometimes arrests are not made at the scene. When I call the detective, rather than call the witnesses, I call the detective because at this point in time the white perpetrator suspect was named as a witness to the crime all right which is how it was scripted in the detective's report so I called the detective to get clarity on the witness's role because it seemed to me from reading in between the lines that the it was a setup and that both were equally involved so it was this most shocking thing to me He chuckled when he was asked the question. And he said to me, well, the dad of the white kid came in. He's a good kid. He was coerced by the black kid and he really wasn't involved. So I didn't arrest him. So after taking a really deep breath, because again, we're on the heels of the Rodney King beating, you know, and this police injustice. And here I am making this decision, having the weight of the credibility of me as an investigator weighing in a backdrop and also my obligation to justice in the community which I was sworn to I took a deep breath and all of the ancestors who died (laughs) came with me and I said to that that detective since when do we as cops become judge and jury on the street What was his response? He was shocked. Because as far as he was concerned, I was challenging him. Mind you, I had been on the force for less than a year. I took a lot of gall, again a black female, the old boy network, and here I am challenging him. But I had the authority as the prosecutor's, prosecuting investigator to challenge him and to question him. So I exercised that authority. So a lot of times what happens is because there is so much camaraderie between agencies, we have to work together to pursue justice on behalf of the state, on behalf of the people of the state that we serve. But unfortunately, there's a bias in in the system because if the cop is wrong, then what do you do? Do you just let it go? Or do you challenge and cause friction between agencies? Mm -hmm. So that can be challenging. So if you're compelled to do the right thing, then you can push through that. But if you wanna be liked, or you want to fit in, or you don't want to be challenged because everybody, again, works together, then you let it go. So that's a decision that people have to make. So I made that decision. I wrote up the report, presented it to the prosecutor. He took it to the grand jury and the grand jury indicted both the black kid and the white kid. So they were both brought in, arrested and charged. The prosecutor walked over to me and congratulated me on a stellar write-up. I, not, I would not have seen it had you not written it up that way. Again, because we're prosecuting so many cases, this one could have easily slipped through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And then there was another incident. I don't know if you remember. There were some high school boys.
0: This is what the the mop. Yeah, yeah, I remember that.
1: There yeah, were a group that. of high school boys. I, I I don't remember which high school it was, but it was a majority was like white high school. Yeah, I remember. In the county in which I worked, uh, football players, high school popular football players, and they sodomized a special needs student. And I remember the talk. They weren't charged, and, and this was a white victim, until the people... And it made the news, and then they were later charged.
0: I remember them coming from a prominent family.
1: Did I remember? There was a couple of them that were politically connected. I remember the talk and the conversation amongst the white police officers, the white investigators, and prosecutors. Why are we ruining these children's lives? That was the the focal point. We don't need to ruin these students' lives for one mistake. And I remember being extremely taken aback by the insensitivity to this victim. Being a woman you know they used a plunger I think it was a plunger and sodomized her with a plunger which is which is barbaric. Is. But the fact that no one in that office or at least the white officers did not want these boys to be prosecuted hmm. and that the public had to go. So public outcry is definitely impacts because otherwise a lot of stuff just continues to go under the radar
0: well you 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 mentioned that the force at the time investigators office was 50 50 half black half white these white prosecutors i'm sorry white investigators asked the question why would we ruin the lives of these young men for this one incident. Have you ever experienced, on the other hand, in the black investigators coming to the defense of some of the black? Did they ever have the same sentiments about ruining lives?
1: Absolutely. I, I would I would say they did. Um, fairly speaking, yes. But there wasn't a lot of discussion. Uh, I do remember one particular incident where a black prosecutor asked a group of detectives to go out and pick up a witness. And this person was poor, and they lived in a rough neighborhood, rough community, and black. And when the detectives brought the w- witness in for questioning, it was towards the end of the day. Everybody was kind of shutting down. And the trial was, I believe it was the next day or the day after that. So this was a witness in preparation for trial. So this witness was not 100% cooperative. But I remember when the, the prosecutor's investigators assigned to the case brought the witness in. I was standing right there. The prosecutor, who was a black female, walked up to the investigators and said, detain him. I remember the black investigators were absolutely livid. Her response was, it's a homicide trial. She said detain him, which means that they had to arrest him and put him in a cell. And I, I don't remember what the legal authority was, but I remember that she wanted him detained in a jail cell until the trial, which means that he he was either there for one night or two nights to be a witness to a trial. She took away his freedom. You know, me being new, not knowing all the nuances, I just remember observing that the detective, the investigators were absolutely livid, and they pushed back. They're like, "What are you? What are you? What are you talking about? Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you locking this guy up?" He was we a witness. Wa-, he was a witness. Wow. And they lo- they locked. They said, "Why are we locking him up? He didn't do anything. He's cooperating. He's he came down here with us of his free will." She said, "This is a homicide case, and I don't want to risk him not showing up." So at that point. Again, I felt compelled when all the ancestors said, go, 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 say something. And I I followed her into her office and I had nothing to do with the case. But I followed her into her office and I asked her, why can't you put him in a hotel like we do witnesses? So she said, because it's my case and my prerogative. So I looked at her because we were friendly, not friends, but friendly, two black females. And... And she was a Christian, I remember, and we had shared our, our faith and I said to her, I said, Is is that the Christian what you're doing? Really? Is this Christian or is this career? Are you going to be able to sleep tonight? Are you going to be able to look yourself in the mirror for what you're doing? And she ignored me. You know, those are those are times when you have to speak up, you know, to injustices when you when you witness them. You know, prosecuting is a springboard for, mm-hmm. it makes careers. So a lot of prosecutors are not there for long term. They're there to to get experience and to make their reputation. Um, and it's a political position. It's a political appointment. All those mm-hmm. positions are political appointments. So you're under a tremendous cultural burden of, of conformity and, um... And code.
0: Well, you, you gave us three examples of biased treatment of individuals that are brought into the prosecutor's office. As an investigator, as an employee and co-worker, did you experience any racial tensions among your peers?
1: It was more attributed to me being a female. And a lot of people didn't know who I was because, you know, we were married at the time. So I was Tony Henson. And then one day, um, I think it was my, I'd been working there for about eight or nine months. My father came in and my father was like iconic on the streets of Newark. Everybody knew him. And when he came in, I was at the back of the office. He came in, it's like a big open space. And I worked in cubicles Towards the window.
0: Was he still working then or was he He was retired, he was
1: retired okay. at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But he was still working in the Newark Housing Authority right. as a post-retirement job. And he came in and everybody was like just swarmed around him. I remember. And I didn't know he was in. I, I just heard the commotion. And he walked through and he walked to me. And I gave him a hug. I said, hey, dad. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh. I didn't know that that was your daughter because they, cause my name was Henson. It wasn't Simmons. I didn't know that it was your daughter. And I can tell you right from then on, the treatment changed for me. They started treating me like a, a, a respected equal because they knew who, who I was. Before, they didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. So, again, that nepotism, what family you're from, who are you, plays a role in how you're treated as well. Because you have to know somebody to get appointed, and then in order to really thrive and survive. Um, Mm. And I thank God that it took him a few months to come see me at the prosecutor's Mm. office because I was able to start developing my reputation as a prosecutor's investigator on my own merit. My father was, was tough. I mean, he was... He made his reputation on, and just paying homage to him, and he rest in peace, he made his reputation on not allowing people to be abused in the system. And I remember a situation where he came home, his knuckles were bruised, and he came home and he showed it to my mother and my mother said, you got into a fight? He said, yeah. He said, white guys was, was, was beating up on this, this uh, black suspect. And I pulled him off and punched him in the face. I, said, I wanted him to know how it felt to be punched in the face. Mm. So <laughs> that was my father.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, in, in light of what's going on now, your, your dad was someone who looked out for police brutality and stand for it.
1: No, he didn't stand for it. Yeah. My mother was the same way. Yeah.
0: That's that's something that's lost in today's society among some police officers. I won't say all, but some.
1: Well, you never know. Yeah. See, that's the point. You never know.
0: But your dad wouldn't allow someone to put the knee on the neck of someone.
1: No, he would have di- If he was standing by, he would not. No, no, he would have not have, no. They wouldn't have, nah. They wouldn't even got to the ground. Once they're handcuffed, that's it. The the fight is over. There's there's nothing else unless they're uh, under the influence and have mental incapacities, but the fight is over. Handcuffed, that's it. You're done. Put them in a car, you go. You keep it moving. That was, to me, a display. This particular incident we're talking about, George Floyd in Minnesota, that was a display of, of arrogance and barbarism ambitiousness because he knew he was being videotaped see the difference between other incidents is the adrenaline is high and although you're trained to de-escalate and that is and also what's needed and, and it's easy to get caught up in emotion when you're doing a police chase or you're you're in a situation where you see it escalating or people are talking back to you challenging you what have you you also years ago people had respect for authority so there's diminishing respect for authority but police contribute to that as well but when you but this particular situation his adrenaline was not high this was clearly to me in my opinion a display of arrogance and almost bravado like a prized catch that he could do this. This was a performance to me. Wow. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. This particular case where, with the the knee on the neck. Clearly a performance. Because he was talking. He was very calm and collected. There was no excitement. There was right. no motion. He, he an accident
0: that stu- happened or something like that.
1: It was... I don't know who he was performing for. Mm -hmm. I don't know who he was demonstrating for. I don't know if it was an initiation. Um, Those are some of the suspicions that I, undergirding suspicions that I have.
0: So, in in light of that, can you share with us some of the training techniques you guys, you, you had as an investigator? Great question. When it comes to deadly force.
1: Well, I know for a fact that the training now that's available, now maybe they might not take advantage of it, but it, when we, back in the 90s, we had simulated training. You know, I graduated from the police academy. We had a training exercises. It was simulated and live so that you wouldn't be biased. So the training was on how to take cover to identify the threat and assess the threat before you entered. situation before you approach the situation you have to assess it 360 degrees and identify all the threats so again that was that was we, we did that those exercises over and over and over again until you develop a muscle memory this is why i cannot understand how police officers can go with the proper training from zero to 60 because you are trained to assess all the threats before you even enter the situation, isolate it. We've done drug raids, we've done, I just, I don't understand the quick trigger and I know we were trained to de-escalate situations.
0: Well, that brings me to my next question. With your training, when is it appropriate to apply physical force as an arresting officer.
1: Well, physical force, you engage in when people resist. So if they're cooperative, there's you, you, you have to touch people in order to put them in handcuffs. And that's why you put handcuffs behind people, because that keeps them from being able to fight. The only thing at that point you can do is kick, and if you kick, you'll probably fall. So handcuffs work. They've been the number one restraining tool for decades because they work. And especially if they're properly patted down to make sure that they don't have any weapons. That's why you place them in the car with the shield, because that, you know, you don't I, throwing people up against the wall, all of that stuff. It's, a lot of it is sensationalism that you see in the movies. At these, these cops are practicing now. But all you, all you're thinking about when you're effecting an arrest is, does this person have any weapons that they can hurt you with? And getting those weapons out of their pockets, etc., and putting the handcuffs behind them, and then put them in a the car and you go. It is all of this extra stuff.
0: So a perpetrator, cuffs on behind his back, is no longer a threat.
1: It's typically not a harm to you. Maybe a harm to himself, but or herself, but not necessarily a harm to you. It's interesting
0: anything else you can tell me about or want to reemphasize or it's...
1: no it was just discouraging that the culture was so so established and 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 that's when i started understanding the need for advocating for more black prosecutors and more black investigators especially in communities of color community policing and people getting to know people as a part of the community is the most Effective ways of combating crime. I mean, studies are out there. They show it. And I want to share some statistics, too, because I think it's important to understand that violent crime is on the decline and has been for quite a few years. Yet police brutality and incidents of police killings are on the, on the rise, which is, according to the mappingpoliceviolence.org, of killings by police from 2013 to 2019 have not resulted in the officer being charged with the crime. 99%. So there's no accountability. And I remember when I was in police uh, training, I asked the question to the trainer, what is the one thing you want to tell us to be aware of when we get released from this training, when, once we graduate? And his response to me was, as a police officer, you are held to a higher standard. You are more likely to get arrested as a police officer than you are as a civilian.
0: What do you think of the narrative I was fearing for my life?
1: Those people should not be serving as officers. Point blank. End of story.
0: I agree. Well, let's end on a positive
1: note. um,
0: What are you most proud of?
1: I am most proud of, of the advocacy of the young people today. It's agonizing as a mother. But I... I'm hearing our children speak up, be active voters, and engaging in processes. And I believe that we're raising a generation who believes that they can make a difference. So that's where the hope is, the young people. As long as we continue to ca- encourage them. It's
0: good stuff. It's
1: hope. Black Family Table Talks, what's up?
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Family Table Talk. We pray that you heard some principles to put into your strong Black Family toolbox. Be sure to tune in next week and remember, sharing is character. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and visit our website at blackfamilytabletalk.com. Look for special discounts and ways to be part of the Black Family Table Talk community.
1: As a part of our mission to do our part to strengthen Black families, we endorse small Black-owned businesses. This is our way of strengthening Black families economically. This week, I'm spotlighting my own personal story, a poetic memoir that was just released called Queen's Gotta Fleet 2. Mastering the Art of Reclaiming Your Throne. It ranked number one in two categories on Amazon. Check it out at blackfamilytabletalk.com. Under Section 107 of the Copyright Act 1976, allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comments, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by a copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. The news and opinions expressed on Black Family Table Talk do not necessarily reflect various platform hosts. All type topics are for entertainment purposes only. Discretion is strongly advised, and all commentary is alleged. This is a Micah 68 Media LLC production.